0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Book of Psalms, so grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McLarty.
1: We are in Psalm 18 tonight. Psalm 18 is also repeated in 2nd Samuel 22, right toward the end of 2nd Samuel. And it is quoted verbatim in 2nd Samuel 22 and here in the Psalms. And even though it is quoted mostly identically, there are little variations here and there. Those variations actually make sense because David lived about 500 years before these psalms were assembled by Ezra and the priests around him. And so over the course of that 500 years, there were copies made of the psalm that was cited in 2 Samuel 22. And so it makes sense that over the course of writing it and copying it, there'd be little differences. But for the most part, theologically, content-wise, it's identical. This psalm is a wartime psalm. This psalm is David talking about a battle that he was involved in. We don't know the particular battle, but by reading this psalm, we can understand some of the particulars, some of the details that occurred during this battle. David's going to admit in this psalm that he was completely overwhelmed, outmanned, outgunned, that he was going to be in deep trouble if God did not intervene on his behalf. And then apparently something happened. David describes it like a weather event a storm. He talks about a gathering of dark clouds. He talks about lightning and thunder. He talks about the hail that came down from the sky. And so knowing the sovereignty of God, he accredits God with all of those things happening. And that seems to have slowed the attack of the enemy enough for David to regroup and then go on the attack. And David won the day. So this entire psalm is a psalm of praise to God for delivering David in a situation where it looked like he was all but finished. Now, he's going to express the weather event very poetically. But I also want to concentrate on the various different ways that David describes God, because he uses a lot of different words, a lot of different language to describe different characteristics of the God that David has gotten to know. So, there is a superscript to Psalm 18. David writes, For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So, that gives us some indication that not only were there enemies, and he's going to say that some of these enemies were goy, they were Gentiles. So there were Gentiles involved in the attack, but then it was also Saul himself who was after David. So it was like a two-pronged attack. You can see where David was feeling like he was surrounded, he was trapped. Either way he went, if he went to Israel looking for help, Saul was out to get him. If he went to the Gentiles, the Gentiles were out to get him. So genuinely, there was no way out of the situation that David was in, and yet he ends up delivered and delivered through events that could only be the intercession of God on his behalf. And so he starts this psalm by saying, I love thee, O Yahweh. What a great way to start a psalm. You know, when Jesus was asked, what the great commandment was. He said, the great commandment is this, that you would fear and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And so the great commandment, according to Jesus, starts with love of God. And here, David starts in the same place. Before he even explains why he loves God or what God did to save him, how God delivered him, he starts with the declaration at the very beginning, I love thee, O Lord, my strength. Now, later, David is going to describe the kind of strength that God gave him, and he's going to speak in kind of hyperbolic language. He's going to say that by the Lord's strength, he's able to leap over walls. Well, I doubt that David ever actually leapt over a wall. He said, by the strength of the Lord, I can charge at a troop. In other words, I by myself can charge on a whole army of people and send them flying by the strength of the Lord. So he says, I love thee, O Lord, because you are my strength. You're the one who empowers me. And certainly David knows that firsthand because David is describing the fact that the Lord did deliver him. And I really, really like the juxtaposition of the two contrasts in this psalm, the beginning of the psalm and the end of the psalm. The beginning of the psalm is David admitting his own inability, his own lack of strength his own ability to deliver himself. And the end of the psalm is, God delivered me. So you can see why he would say, I love you, Lord, because you delivered me. You are my strength. And then he continues describing God and says, Yahweh is my rock. In other words, God is rigorous. God you can stand on. God is unmoving. God is like a boulder. Once it's in place, nobody gets to move it. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. What do you do in a fortress? Well, when you're in a fortress, you're behind high walls. You're being protected. You've got guards around you. So he says, God is my fortress and my deliverer. Well, yeah, because God had delivered him when all his enemies were trying to attack and destroy him. So God is my rock. He's my strength. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. And then he returns to this rock motif. This is a very vital part of David's description. He calls God his rock over and over again in the Psalms. My God, my rock in whom I hide, in whom I take my refuge. I mean, when you run, who else are you going to run to? I was talking the other day to a fellow who is having some pretty severe physical difficulties. And his question was, why? Why would God put me through this? And I said to him, how much time do you spend these days depending on God? He said, oh, constantly, unerring, unstoppingly. I said, you just answered your own question. When you were comfortable, when things were good, when the money was flowing, how much time did you spend thinking about God and praying to God? And he said, oh, virtually never. I said, you just figured it out. That means that God could figure it out, and he is taking you through very purposefully the difficulties that you're going through right now to cause you to run to him. Well, it's the same thing David's talking about here. When there's nowhere else to go, when there's no one else to lean on, God is the refuge. He is your hiding place. Then he says, God is my shield. David's a man of war. David's a man of battle. He understands that a sword is a good offensive weapon, but you also need a defensive weapon When people are shooting at you or casting swords at you, it's good to have a shield in your hand to protect yourself from the onslaught of your enemy. Here David says that the Lord is his shield. So he's saying that the Lord is the one who protects him from his enemies, from the evil of this world. And the horn of my salvation. Horn means might, means strength. And so God himself is the strength of the salvation of David. And once again, David is not talking about eternal salvation here. He's talking about the fact that God saved him from his enemies, saved him so that he could be on the throne of Israel, protected him so that his kingdom would continue. God is my shield and the horn of my salvation, and he is my stronghold, which is very much like a fortress. It's saying God is my protector. The reason that my enemies, whether we're talking about spiritual enemies, whether we're talking about physical enemies, whether we're talking about the people of this world and the society of this world that are enemy to all things Christian, the fact is God himself is our stronghold. He is our protection. He's the one that we constantly run to. So knowing that the Lord is my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my rock again, and the one I take refuge in. He is my shield. He's the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold. Then verse 3 just makes sense. I call upon the Lord. Well, yeah, where else are you going to go? In the situation David found himself in, who else was he going to call on? He recognized his own inability to deliver himself. So he calls upon the Lord and then describes God yet again I call upon Yahweh, who is worthy to be praised. That's a chief characteristic of who God actually is. He is the one who is worthy to be praised. Every once in a while, we will praise each other, we'll compliment each other. When Steve walked through the door, I complimented his shorts (laughs) because they were praiseworthy. But the only one who actually deserves praise is God, because to everybody else, when you praise them, it tends to get to their ego, it tends to get to their human pride and make them think, yeah, that's right, I'm all that. Yeah, you're right to praise me, dig me. But God is the only one who is completely worthy of praise. Therefore, the expectation of praise and worship toward God is not a matter of ego. It's not a matter of pride. It's a matter of genuine worth, which is why the Bible says so often that he is worthy to be praised. He's the only one who genuinely deserves praise. And David uses that as a descriptor of who Yahweh is. I call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised. And when he called on him, I am saved from my enemies. There's that salvation he spoke of earlier. Now he's going to describe what his situation was like, starting in verse 4. The cords of death encompassed me. That means they surrounded me everywhere I went. As I said earlier, if he went to Israel, Saul was out to get him. If he goes to the Gentiles, the enemies are out to get him. He feels like he's completely surrounded. Everywhere he goes, the very bonds of death, the cords of death were all around him. There's nowhere to run. And the torrents, the overflowing of ungodliness terrified me. David, a godly man looking for godly help from godly people, looked around himself, and everywhere he looked, all he saw was ungodliness. Therefore, it terrified him because he realized that the cords of death were right there surrounding him, encompassing him. He's going to die in this moment. It's probably going to be a terrible, tragic death. And the people around him are no help because of their godlessness. Does that sound familiar at all? Look around at the society today, looking for anybody who seems to understand anything, anybody who's pursuing any kind of righteousness, anybody who has any kind of biblical wisdom, and it's really hard to find. They're very few and far between. David found himself in that same position. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents, the overwhelming ungodliness, terrified me. The cords, again, the bounds, the cords of Sheol, the cords of the grave itself, surrounded me. So look at those two parallels. The cords of death surrounded me, the cords of Sheol surrounded me, and the snares, the traps of death, confronted me. So David is describing his condition as being really frightening. And he really didn't know how he was going to deliver himself from the situation that he was in. I mean, the battle looks bad from David's perspective. It's going to result in death. And there's no one there to help, because there's no godliness among the people. And I'm going to wind up in Sheol, in the grave. The snares of death confronted me. So in my distress, remember what I said a few minutes ago? It's not when it's all rainbows and kumbaya that we're likely to call on God. That's not usually when we do it. We're too busy thinking we're self-made men. We're too busy celebrating the fact that everything's going good for us. But let God throw some hardship on us, some difficulty. What will we do? We'll cry out to God. Well, that's demonstrated here again where David said, I was in this terrible situation. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, I called upon Yahweh. Well, yeah, where else are you going to go? And as I keep saying, the troubles, the trials, the difficulties of this life, if they are purposeless, well, then God is just capricious And the things that happen to us that are bad just happen purposelessly. But once you know a sovereign God and you understand that the sovereign plan of God is working all things for his own glory and for our good, then even the difficulties, the struggles, the trials of life have purpose. And once you get a hold of that, you're able to endure the trials of this life. So David, under all these difficulties, In his distress, notice that the distress was not lifted from him. Notice he was still in the distress. And that was the point at which he called upon Yahweh. And I cried to my God for help. And he heard my voice out of his temple. What a beautiful description. God is on his throne doing whatever seems good to him. God is sitting in his majestic and holy temple in the heavens. And yet he could hear the voice of David. And he heard my voice out of his temple. And he heard my cry for help before him. And it came into his ears. And then something happens, starting at verse 7. And David is going to give an admittedly poetic description of it. But as you listen to it, you can tell that something storm-like, that was a a dynamic, a turning of what we would call nature, happened to intervene on David's behalf to scatter his enemies, and then David finally conquers. Because verse 7 says, and the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling, and they were shaken because he was angry. So whatever David was experiencing at that moment, he saw it, he understood it as the intervention of God. And it certainly proved to be that, because he's going to spend the next several verses describing all of these events that happened that all ended up in his favor. And so he's giving God the credit for God's intervention on his behalf because he called to the Lord. The earth shook and quaked. And the foundations of the mountains were trembling, and they were shaken because he was angry. And smoke went up out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured, and coals were kindled by it. And he bowed the heavens also, and he came down with thick darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub, and he flew And he sped upon the wings of the wind, and he made darkness his hiding place, his canopy round about him, darkness of waters, thick clouds in the skies. From the brightness before him passed his thick, dark clouds, hailstones, coals of fire. And the Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, Hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows, and he scattered them. He scattered the enemies. And lightning flashes from abundance, and he routed them. He routed David's enemies. And then the channels of water appeared. Rain, thick rain coming from these thick clouds, coming behind all this hail. Then channels of water appeared. And the foundations of the world were laid bare at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. And he sent from on high, and he took me, and he drew me out of many waters. Okay, so David has just very poetically described some event that took place in what we would call nature. Apparently thick, dark clouds surrounded the area that he was in and suddenly there was an earthquake. Suddenly there was thunder and lightning. There was hail. There was a pouring of rain so much so that it looked like the, like the earth itself was exposed by the torrents of rain and yet God delivered David out of these many waters. And so something happened in the midst of this battle. Something that David looks back on and says, that had to be God, because I called out to God, and then God delivered me, but he delivered me through all of these things that he's in charge of. David wasn't the one calling down lightning from the sky. David wasn't the one thundering his voice. David didn't cause the hail. And yet there seemed to be all these interventions in the battle that turned it his way because, he says, that these things God did scattered his enemies and routed his enemies. So they were on the run. They were running for cover, which makes sense, by the way. We live in Middle Tennessee, where every once in a while, you'll get a tornado warning. I had a tornado at the very end of my street several years ago. And boy, the windows in my house were just shaking and rattling and. It's the only time that I ever heard a tornado. I'd always heard that it sounded like a, a locomotive engine. It did. It was terrifying. It was so frightening. Okay, so that's very current here in Middle Tennessee. Same thing could be happening for David, where the torrents of wind and the rain and the hail and earthquakes I mean, imagine if all of that occurred at the same time. Of course, his enemies would be running for cover. It's natural. It's what any human being would do. You'd run for cover. And so God routed them. Channels of water appeared. And the foundations of the world were laid bare. And at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. And he sent them down from on high. And he took me And he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. So here's David's declaration that his enemies were stronger than him, apparently more numerous than him, more well-equipped than him. And he realized that if they had their way, he was going to die. He called to God. God delivered him with a mighty hand. He recognizes it as God alone doing this. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord, here's another descriptor, was my stay. In battle, a stay is laying down something that your enemy can't get past building up some kind of wall, some kind of divider between you and your enemy where they can only come so far and no further. And he says, the Lord was that for me. My enemies got close. My enemies were able to scare me. My enemies made me think I was going to die. But it was God who intervened because he is my stay. He's my rock. He's my fortress. Verse 19. He brought me forth also into a broad place and rescued me because he delighted in me. Now, starting at verse 20, David is going to say that Yahweh rewarded him because of his own personal righteousness. We've seen this previously in the Psalms, but I will remind you that David is living under the law of God. David is the king of Israel who was ruling according to the law of God. It is necessary, a prerequisite, that he live by the law of God, and the law of God is all about performance, all about establishing your righteousness based on your obedience to the law, which is why Paul in the New Testament, in describing himself during his Judaistic period, could say, before the law, I was blameless. He actually believed that that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and that nobody could lay anything to him. Well, David is saying the same thing here, and he is arguing that he performed the law in such a way that his relationship with God was a solid relationship. Let's read a couple of verses, and then we're going to compare it before it sounds like David is getting a little too haughty, and David starts kind of saying, God was good to me because, well, I'm righteous. And we'll compare it to what he says later in this same psalm. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, says verse 20. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances, his law, the law of Moses, all his ordinances were before me And I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Go over to verse 32. In verse 32 of this same psalm, David says, The Lord who girds me with strength and who makes my way blameless. So David admits that it is the Lord who makes his way blameless... And yet at the same time says, I was blameless before the Lord. So I don't think David is necessarily arguing for his own righteousness as the motivation for why God delivered him. I think what he's doing here is encouraging obedience to the law of God. He's setting up a contrast here where he's saying, God delivered me, but who am I? I'm the king of Israel who follows obediently the law of God. The enemies, the Gentiles, don't obey the law of God, and look what happened to them. So he's actually encouraging obedience to God's law, which is what Israel was required to follow. I was also blameless with him, says verse 23, and I kept myself from my iniquity, and therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. Then here's another descriptor of God. With the kind, he does also show himself kind. With the blameless, thou dost show thyself blameless. With the pure, thou dost show thyself pure. And with the crooked, If you were going to follow the pattern he's established, it would be with the crooked, he shows himself crooked. But no, David says, and with the crooked, you do show yourself astute. You're right on top of it. You're very aware of it. You're aware of their crookedness. You're aware that they are not following after your standards. And so David has set up a contrast here. I follow after the law of God and God delivers me. And yet God knows those who do not follow after his law. He knows those whose way is crooked because he's astute. He's knowledgeable of it. In verse 27, the character of God is described this way. For you do save afflicted people, but haughty eyes you do abase. Here's a contrast again. The humble, the afflicted, the people who are crying out for him, the people who are dependent on God, To those people, he's going to give salvation. But to those who are prideful, to those who are haughty, I think that's the same group that he's calling the crooked. To those people, he's going to abase them. The same way as this whole battle describes. David was fiercely outnumbered. David was expecting nothing but death under his own power. And yet God delivered him. And then David says, it's because I'm one of the people who follows after the righteousness of God. But there are people who don't do that. And God will take them down and abase them the same way that he scattered and afflicted my enemies. Verse 27. For thou dost save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes thou dost abase. For thou dost light my lamp. The Yahweh, my God, illumines my darkness. For by thee, here's that bit of hyperbole I mentioned earlier. For by thee, I can run upon a troop, and by my God, I can leap over a wall. In other words, David is saying, God is my strength. Left to myself, I'm a goner. Left to myself, I'm going to the grave. By God, I can leap over walls. By God, I can run upon a troop. But as for God, again, back to the descriptions of God. But as for God, his way is blameless. That's such an important concept that I just want to take a moment, and I really am going to try to finish this psalm tonight. But it's really important that in our conception of God and who God is, that we start with the knowledge that he is righteous and holy. Therefore, whatever he does is righteous and holy by definition, because it's being done by a righteous and holy God. Sometimes when we go through difficulties in life, it's easy to start shaking our fist at God and start blaming God and start asking questions like, why me? But the truth is, God is doing everything according to his own righteous and holy purpose, And he's not going to change his mind just because you don't like it or because you don't agree. The best thing to do is to stop beating your head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty and recognize that he's going to be God anyway, and he's going to do what he's going to do anyway, and that you should just bow the knee before him and admit that he's God and you're not. And he is absolutely blameless. You can't lay any charge to him. Because even if you attempt to charge him, even if you attempt to say, I wouldn't do it that way, or gosh, that's inhumane of God to do things like that. The truth is, he's God. He's going to be God anyway. He's going to do what he's going to do. And you're just in rebellion against a holy, righteous God being holy and righteous. You cannot blame God for doing or being any of the things that he does or how he is. There's a convoluted sentence. But you get the point. Verse 30, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. It's tried. It's been experienced. David is saying, I'm not the first one who relied on the word of God and then was delivered by God. This is the way it works. Remember, there's a whole lot of history before David. And the people of God have time and time again demonstrated that the word of God is accurate and true. Think of like Joseph when he had a vision that his brothers were going to bow down before him. And certainly his mom and dad and brothers didn't like that idea. And then he ends up being second only to Pharaoh. There's a famine. They come to Egypt. They bow down in front of him. Why did that all happen? Because the word of God is true. David knows stories like that, and he's able to say, the word of God is true. The word of God is tested. It has been tried. It proves itself. It is self-authenticating. You can trust the word of God. The word of Yahweh is tried, and he is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is Adonai but Yahweh? The NASB translates that, But who is God but the Lord? Both the word God and the word Lord are descriptors. Actually, God is being referred to here by his proper name. And so who is Adonai? In Egypt and in many of the other foreign nations, there was a whole pantheon of gods, a whole pantheon of choices that you could call Adonai. David's argument here is there's only one God who has evidence. There's only one God who has proven himself. And there is no other Adonai. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's identifying the only God who is, which is why God could tell Moses, I am because I am. The only God who actually is, is Yahweh. Who is a rock? There's that rock reference again. Who is stable? You can stand on him. You can count on him. He's unmoving. Who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me upon high places. That's right, by the way. God took David from the sheepfold and made him king of Israel. David could talk first person and say... God treated me the way a deer, deer rather unbelievably like mountain goats, can climb up on the sides of craggy cliffs and steeps and mountains, and they're just fine. They have such sure feet on the way up. And David says, God, who is my rock, has put me in this high place, but he's also secured me there. He has given me feet like a hind's feet. The word hind, an old English word that just means a doe, a deer, a deer. A female deer. (laughs) That's what it means. It actually means a female deer. And he makes my feet like those kind of deer that can stand on the mountainside. And he sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Here's another one of those hyperbolic statements. I mean, a bow of bronze isn't bendable. And yet David says, my strength comes from God. And if God wants me to, I will bend that bow of bronze. Thou hast also given me the shield, the protection of your <laughs> salvation. You've protected me. You've preserved me. And your right hand upholds me. And thy gentleness makes me great. Actually, the Hebrew word that is translated in the NASB as gentleness, David is not saying you're a very gentle God and that's what makes me great. The word I think is better translated condescension. The fact that you in all your might and in all your strength have reached down to me in my weakness is what makes me great. It's what lifts me up. It's what upholds me. Verse 36, thou dost Enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. David started this psalm by, I'm surrounded and I'm going to die. I'm surrounded and there's no way out. Here he is toward the end of the psalm saying, you put me in a broad place, in a wide open place. You've secured my feet. You've enlarged my steps, and I will not slip because you have planted me here, and you are my rock. He went from, I'm frightened. He even said he was so scared, because he was so endangered, and here he is speaking so very confidently. What changed? David didn't change. His attitude changed. His outlook changed, because he got his eyes off of his circumstances, and off his own inability, and got his eyes onto God, which is why I think this psalm has so many descriptors of God. God who is a rock and is salvation and is a shield and is a fortress. He is a hiding place. And once David recognizes all that, then he can look at his situation again and say, God's got it. Whatever it is, whatever the difficulty is, God is going to preserve me and God is going to plant me. God is going to put me in high places. You do enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped Verse 37, a moment ago he talked about how his enemies were surrounding him and pursuing him. And then something happened, some storm happened, some weather event happened that seems to have turned the tide of the battle. Because now in verse 37 David says, I pursued my enemies and I overtook them and I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for thou hast girded me with strength for the battle. Thou hast subdued under me those who rose up against me. Thou hast also made my enemies turn their backs to me. That means they're running away. Now they're running from David instead of toward David. And I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help but there was none to save. Why was there none to save? Because God alone is the savior in these things. And so he says, they even cried to Yahweh, but he did not answer them. Well, their sovereignty, he answered David, but he didn't answer David's enemies. He protected David, he routed David's enemies. And so in the big picture, what God is doing is he is preserving Israel because of all the promises, the covenants that he has made to Israel. Israel has to be sustained. Israel has to continue. And so the enemies could not overtake David. David has this promise that through his progeny, his greater son is going to sit on his throne in Jerusalem Ruling the kingdoms of the world, ruling the 12 tribes, the blessings of God are going to flow through Jerusalem and out to the Gentiles. So what happens to that plan if the Gentiles manage to rout Jerusalem and its king? Well, that can't happen. So God intervened on behalf of David in order to accomplish God's own will So that God is keeping his own promises, and now he's even making the enemies of David turn their backs and run away, and I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. And then I beat them as fine as dust before the wind. There's a good description. We use a very similar description to this very day. Have you ever heard anybody say, I'll beat you to a pulp? Mm. It's the same idea. David says, I beat them so badly. I routed them so badly that it was like I had beat them into a fine dust before the wind. I emptied them out as the mire of the streets. Thou hast delivered me from the contentions, the arguments, the fighting, the warfare, the hatred. Of the people. And thou hast placed me as the head of the Goy, of the nations, of the Gentiles. Talk about a turn of events. The nations, the Gentiles were trying to kill me, and you established my throne to the point where I am now ruler over those Gentile nations. That's how badly I routed their armies. Thou hast placed me as the head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. And in fact, they serve him so well that verse 44 says, as soon as they hear, they obey me. So David could put out edicts. And as soon as they heard it, they would obey. Foreigners, he says, submit to me. Foreigners fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. In other words, the places where they were hiding to protect themselves from me, they now have withered away. Their strength has withered away, and they come in front of me and bow down in front of me, trembling out of their fortresses. Okay, so given that turn of events, where David went from, they're going to kill me, to I rule over them, God didn't just preserve him, God established him and established his kingship to such a degree that he even had authority over some of the Gentile nations that were attacking him. Therefore, verse 46 says, the Lord lives. Well, you don't have to say more than that. Mm. David has had all these descriptions of who God is and what God is like. But in the end, the chief thing to know is, the Lord lives. The other gods are not. That's right. You can cry to them, but in the end, they can't hear you. They can't see, they can't think, they can't fight for you. And if they're going to move, you have to move them. But the Lord, the chief defining characteristic of God himself, is that he is. Which is, again, why he describes himself as the God who is. I am Because I am. So you go tell Pharaoh, I am sent me. The very phrase, I am, indicates everyone else am not. I am. The other gods are not. The Lord lives. And blessed be my rock. Blessed be, speak well of, say good things about my rock. My rock who establishes me, my rock that I can stand on, my rock that is rigorous, my rock that is unmovable, say good things about him. Blessed be my rock, and exalted, lifted up, worthy to be praised, is the God of my salvation. Does that make you want to sing? Hosanna, blessed be the rock. Blessed be the rock of my salvation. That comes right from that verse. Verse 47. The God who executes vengeance for me and subdues people under me. So again, this is part of God's absolute sovereignty. Who gets to rule? The one God chooses. Who gets ruled over? The ones God chooses. How does society work? The way God chooses. Who gets delivered? The ones God chooses. Who ends up under his punishment? The ones that God chooses. He's the one who executes vengeance on behalf of David. Deliverance for David. Salvation for David. Vengeance on the enemies. Who's the deciding factor and who gets Vengeance executed on them versus who is blessed and saved? God. God's the deciding factor in all of it. Had I paused, you would have said the right answer, but I didn't pause. The God who executes vengeance for me and subdues people under me. Actually, that's plural, subdues peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely thou dost. Lift me above those who rise up against me, and thou dost rescue me from the violent man. Right now, our world is arguing over and over again about the violence that people do to each other. The governments of the world are trying to create some kind of standards, some kind of laws that will prevent the violence of this world. And one thing they're finding out is you can't legislate morality. It doesn't matter how many guns they take away. I mean, Cain killed Abel with a rock. They'll find a way. They'll do it. In the New Testament, people were stoned to death. Nobody got shot. There was an event in England just a couple of weeks ago where there was a guy with a bow and arrow. People who want to be violent will find a way to be violent. And men aren't going to be the solution for that. The laws of men, the rules of men are not going to be the solution to that. The only solution to the violence of men is God himself. And David says here that God protects his people from the violence of other people. Thou dost rescue me from the violent man. Verse 49. Therefore I will give thanks to you among the nations, among the Goy, among the Gentiles, not only among my own people, but I will tell everyone everywhere that you are blessed, that you are righteous, that you are the deliverer, and I am going to give thanks to you among all the nations, O Yahweh. I will sing praises to thy name. That's why there's so many psalms. Have you ever wondered why there's so many psalms? It's because David just kept singing praises to God. And very much like modern ideas of testimony, so many of these psalms follow the same pattern as Psalm 18 here, where David starts out by saying, it was bad. I was in trouble. I was in desperate straits but God delivered me, God upheld me, God took care of me, God saved me, and therefore, I'm going to say all these praiseworthy things about God. As you look back over the course of your life, I'm betting it's real easy for you to think of moments when you thought you weren't going to make it. It's real easy to think of times when You just thought that God and man had abandoned you and the best you could do is maybe curl up in a corner in a fetal position or lay down and die. And those were your options. And yet, here you are, still eating, still talking, still breathing, still wearing clothes, still blessed by God. And therefore, every day and in all ways and to everybody on the planet, we ought to be thanking God. We ought to be praising God. We ought to be very public very unafraid, very bold about the fact that we worship the God who has delivered us through all the difficulties of this life. It's an ugly world. It's a violent world. Here we sit. We're safe. Anybody in the room eat today? I know I did. Well, James and I are the only two. You liars.
0: <laughs> too, much.
1: too much. See, some people ate too much today. You're all wearing some set of clothes. Everybody got another set of clothes somewhere? Sure. We have homes to live in, cars to drive. You know I could go down the list. You know, the thing. I could go down the list. (laughs) And we would all have to admit, oh, we're just so highly blessed. We're so highly favored by God. We have no reason, no rationale to not praise him and thank him as long as he continues to give us breath. That's David's argument here. Therefore, since he has delivered me, therefore I will give thanks to thee among the nations, O Yahweh, and I will sing praises to thy name. He gives great deliverance to his king. David, looking back on the deliverance that God gave him, Says, God gave a great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and to his descendants forever. What a good psalm. Yes. Okay, now earlier I mentioned 2 Samuel 22. Turn to 2 Samuel 22 for a moment. Actually, we're going to 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 22 is a recitation of the same psalm that we just read. But 2 Samuel 23 is David's last psalm. And you will see some of the same themes. You're going to see David extolling God and the various different virtues and strengths of God. But he's also going to bless God for the fact that he has a covenant with God, a promise from God that the posterity of David is going to continue until David's greater son sits on the throne. David is very conscious of the Davidic covenant, and that becomes one of the bases for his praise of God. 2 Samuel 23, starting at verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, and the man who was raised on high declares the anointed of God, of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth, through sunshine after rain, truly is not my house so with God. For he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured. Boy, that's the work of God. He makes promises, And then he orders those promises. He secures those promises because he is the unmovable rock. You can count on it. His word is tested. His word is tried. Whatever he says is going to be accomplished. For all my salvation, says David, and all my desire, will he not indeed make it grow? David says, whatever good has come to me. Whatever value my life has had, I even rose to being king of Israel. All of that is a result of God himself deciding it, decreeing it, ordering it, securing it. And then among his last words in verse 6, he says, but the worthless, every one of them, will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. David, in his very last words, declares once again the sovereignty and the election of God, the goodness of God who made promises to David and his posterity, and yet at the same time is going to burn the unworthy, the worthless, (laughs) who he compared to thorny bushes and said, boy, if you want to go and... Pick one of those. If you want to put your hand in one of those, you better be wearing a suit of iron because you're going to get stabbed otherwise. So Psalm 18, 2 Samuel 23, we get a very consistent image from David of the God who he worships. He's the God who is sovereign. He is the God who is his deliverer. He is the sovereign who is his rock. And David, whenever he finds himself in these times of trouble, in these times where it looks like there's just no way out, has nowhere else to go but God. And that is the same for us. When you've got nowhere else to go, you've got a savior. You've got a deliverer. You've got a rock that you can stand on. And he is worthy to be praised, and he is worthy to be thanked, even among the peoples, even among the unbelievers. He is worthy to be blessed and spoken well of. Amen. If you get nothing else from tonight... Get that.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.